you can't hold people accountable for everything they've ever said at every time in the past and pull it all forwards to right now. Like, that's what was on your mind. That's where you were in your career. That's what was going on in your world. Like, that's what it was. And rather than hold it in, stay quiet and not share. Like, we, we, we err on the side of sharing, maybe oversharing some of that stuff. And yeah. so be it. Like, that's what we do. I think that the important thing is to figure out who you are and what you're comfortable doing. I wouldn't do something that you're uncomfortable with because someone else tells you to do it. You know, if you like to share, share. If you don't, don't. Don't feel like you must because someone else does. It's just find your own, settle into your own groove and go with that is what I would suggest. Get ready for the Product Tea with Leah, your fun-sized dose of business, tech, growth, and product chatter. I'm your host, Leah, and it's time to spill the tea. Welcome back to the Product Team with Leah and the man who taught us work doesn't have to be crazy. And offices can be remote before it was cool on LinkedIn. He's not just a co-founder of Basecamp and 37 Signals, but also a best-selling author of multiple books. We're not saying he has a lot to say, but if we had a dollar for every insight he has given away, we might just be rich by now. He definitely reminded me to rethink traditional workplace norms constantly. After all, if he was following the crowd, we'd be tuning into 74 signals by now. But alas, we're not. Good morning, Jason Fried. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How would you rate this introduction from 1 to 37 signals? Uh, it's close to 37, as I've seen. Thank you for that. That was nice. What do you mean, close? <laughs> well, you know, there's always going to be room for improvement, right? We always have to leave a little bit of space. Yeah, if I learned anything as an executive, we always ask for 110%. Nice. So the 90% are just like sufficient. Can right. you introduce yourself to the fools that may not know you? Well, uh, gosh, I've been doing the same thing for almost 25 years. I've been running this company called 37 Signals. We've made a bunch of products over the years, a lot of SaaS. We were kind of early on remote work, early on SaaS, early on sharing, writing everything up that we know, that kind of thing. We're best known for Basecamp, which is our project management tool. And now we have another product called Hey, which is a really popular email service. And I don't know, we're known for speaking our mind, being very direct, being very much into being independent. So we're bootstrapped and haven't taken any money from the outside world to run the business. And we have a very different approach to, to business and work that, than most in our industry. So I've been espousing this for a couple decades now, and that's essentially who I am on the professional side. Not only is that true, I can also verify it because I've also been in industry for quite some time and I've been following a little bit on the sidelines and also David, who also definitely has opinions. Very much. And <laughs> so, so let me just ask you a question that I ask everyone. And that is, what do people get wrong about you once they do get to know you? I think people would find me to be quite shy, which they might not expect, given the fact that, you know, we're pretty outspoken online and have a lot of opinions and are, appear to be confident in that way. But I'm pretty shy and pretty quiet and maybe more open-minded than most people might think, given that our point of view is very, let's call it severe and clear online. So I think that's one thing that I think surprises people. Yeah. I'm also much shorter than people might expect. Oh, this is really cool because I'm much taller than people expect. All right. How about that? I'm 185, which is, I think, six feet one in yeah, American yeah. numbers. <laughs> yeah, I'm five, I'm five foot seven. So um, I'm... Yeah, uh, there you go. You know, there we go. Yeah. Did you ever have a problem that something haunted you that you had an opinion on, but then changed it later in the years? And then, but you know, the internet never forgets. Is that, is, is that something that happened to you? Because it happens to me. <laughs> I, I'm sure, you know, but I, I don't look back on things. I don't really find that... The, the point. So I'm sure there's a million things I've said that I don't agree with anymore. And frankly, I don't agree with myself every day anyway. Uh, there's all sorts of conflicting opinions in my head all the time. So, you know, you just leave them out there and there they are. And you can't go back. And if you were to go back, you would have said the same exact thing at that same exact time. So I just don't, I don't really find it to be useful to revise or review or uh, revisit at the old stuff. Yeah, fair enough. I had, a, I had a funny happening with something that was written about Simon Sinek. So there was some online battle on Twitter, as usual, as you would like, even though it's a very peaceful platform. So it was along the lines that, oh, you know, Simon Sinek's takes on leadership are total garbage. And then someone was posting a video of him saying something that is arguably actually not that great. But he recorded this like six years ago. And all I kept thinking is, holy shit, <laughs> are people going to hold me accountable for what I'm going to say in like five to six years <sighs> like that? Because I already don't agree what I said like three to four months ago. Yeah. You know, the other thing is no one really cares 
<laughs> no one really cares what anyone said five years ago unless you hate the person. If you hate the person, then you go back and you find all the things you didn't like about them. But you can't you can't fight those people anyway. So I think, you know, we're all sort of embarrassed. I would I'm well, I shouldn't say everyone. I will say I'm embarrassed about things I did in college and things I did after college and things I did early in my career because you don't have the experience, you don't know what you're talking about, you act like you do, and that's just how it is. I went back, I found a notebook recently of like poetry I wrote in college, and it's so yeah fucking embarrassing. But you know, it's like, that's who I was back then. And that's what you do in college and whatever. And so I think like your whole career is a, a collection of those moments. And all you can do is just try to be the best you can right now and not to worry too much about how you were. I mean, of course, if you really screwed up bad, you should know that you should be self aware enough, but I wouldn't linger on it. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out whether I'm starting to get over my own imposter syndrome with HP just because I forget about all the shit that I've done in the past. Helpful, or yeah. <laughs> or whether there's other factors just putting things into perspective. And I think this is something that I appreciated about you quite a lot. And maybe let's just jump into this particular topic right now. It is about what you should look at when you either, you know, like create a, a product, a company, or like also how you develop yourself. You always struck me as someone that was somehow still pushing over the edge of like, I don't know whether I should say this right now, but I think I'm just going to say it and then see what happens. But do you know what I mean? It's like going a little bit against the grain that is right now established, um, but still saying it, almost like saying it and then almost regretting it afterwards, but like still be happy that you did. Well, yeah, I think we always just say what's on our mind. And we tend to be early on things, which means that for a while, at least you're looked at well, you're looked at in a certain way. People don't really understand where you're coming from or what you're saying or that you're, you know, you're wrong or whatever, like remote work and bootstrapping, you know, of course, remote work is now flipping back the other way, but bootstrapping is now, or profitability is now something everyone's paying attention to because money is sort of expensive and not available. And we've been saying this for years. People call this, you know, unambitious and all the things. It's like, whatever. I don't, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. Like what matters is like figuring out what works for you. And then we're willing to say what works for us in the hopes that it might spur on someone else who's in the same situation and isn't sure if it might work for them. And it might give them like one iota of hope to try something different or to follow their own point of view on something, even though we're saying something like that is what it's all about for us. It's not about gotcha or look what we said six years ago. We were right. It's just like, here's what we think now. And sometimes you do go a bit over the edge, but I'll stand by the things I've said. I mean, I may ultimately not agree with them, but I don't think they were like bad things to say at the time. So I, th I think I agree with this as well. I still kind of have the notion of speaking first and then regretting later, but I also learned to not unpublish, right? So like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's super important. Just, just like let things run their course. As you said, people just, they actually care much less than they pretend to. And yeah, and that's what you thought at the time. You can't hold people accountable for everything they've ever said at every time in the past and pull it all forwards to right now. Like that's what was on your mind. That's where you were in your career. That's what was going on in your world. Like that's what it was. And rather than hold it in, stay quiet and not share. Like we 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 err on the side of sharing, maybe oversharing some of that stuff. And yeah. so be it. Like that's what we do. I think that the important thing is to figure out who you are and what you're comfortable doing. I wouldn't do something that you're uncomfortable with because someone else tells you to do it. You know, if you like to share, share. If you don't, don't. Don't feel like you must because someone else does. It's just find your own, settle into your own groove and go with that is what I would suggest. I do agree. But if I were younger, I would yeah. have problems to, uh, did you just say yes that I'm old? No. <laughs> no, I'm joking. So if I were much younger and you had this conversation with me right now, I would be really having trouble to put this into perspective. So like if we had this conversation with me as I would be young, I mean, now I call myself old. I think it, it is very difficult in kind of figuring out who you are when you're not that person yet, because at some we also start to learn from others, right? Like at the same time. And we try to just figure out what makes other people kind of successful. And one of my most favorite examples is I've grew up also in the 80s at the time of where Flavor Flav started, you know, like to, to, to go on stage and everything. And one of the funny things that I noticed is, is best, that people who become ever. public enemy, the best, greatest. Exactly. Ever. Yes. Yeah. People who become famous, they have something on them, you know, like the big watch or the like clock, the gold yeah. chains or whatever. Boom. It took weeks or months. Suddenly, everybody in hip hop was running around with chains and so forth. And I think it's maybe a reaching a little bit. I don't know. But I feel like people try to get a little piece of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like a tribal nature of it. Well, I think it was interesting what you said, which, which was 
you know, I wasn't sure who I was yet or whatever. Like you always are who you are at the moment. This sounds ridiculous to say, but like you just, that was who you were and that's who you are. And right now you've not figured yourself out either. You think you have just like you thought you did 10 years ago, maybe in a sense. And 10 years from now, you're going to be someone else. And you'll look back on this and go, God, I was ridiculous about this. Or I was right or I was wrong, whatever. We just are. We just are at the moment we are. And I wouldn't dwell on it too much and think too harshly or, or look too harshly upon yourself or whatever. But I agree. Like, there's different stages of your life. And you're going to, different things are going to be important to you at different no. times. It's not that you were right or wrong about those times. It was just that was important to you at that moment. And that's who you were. Yeah. I don't know. So if we pull this a little bit more into the direction of business. So yeah. I founded my first, I don't want to call it a startup because it was just a shit show, but like it was like some kind of, sounds like a some startup. kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so it was mid twenties. I started something with my dad and I was not in this particular environment where you just like founders nowadays, they know about bootstrapping, they don't know about VC money, they know about saves, they know about everything, right? Like I was not even close to at that level. So if you had this conversation in trying to figure out, so how should I finance my company? How should I make money? What is the, what is the ambition? What is the goal where I would like to go? If you're young and you're inexperienced, you kind of have to get some kind of guidance, right? And you can follow the path of like, hey, you know, why YC Combinator, like that's the kind of thing. Or you go with, yeah, people like you that also say like, hey, look, bootstrapping is totally fine. And I find it very difficult for younger people and also myself included at some point when I talk about topics that I've never tried out before to just make a decision because it is almost like t choosing a tech stack. Who mm -hmm. do you believe? Because both people sound kind of credible. And I've been in this bubble of overvaluation twice with two hypergrowth companies. And I know how much it pains when you come out on the other side when the valuation suddenly starts to drop. But you don't know better beforehand. And I think what I always loved about your message in this regard is that don't overcomplicate it. That, that's a good one. I think the other thing is, especially when you're really small, there probably are no really wrong or bad decisions. Like it doesn't probably, most things that you like agonize over and worry about don't happen anyway or don't really matter that much. I think there are some like self-funding or raising money because that sends you on two very, very different paths. But had you picked Python or Ruby, it wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know, or Django or Rails. It, it doesn't, it, it wouldn't matter, really. Some people would say it would, but it wouldn't really, really, really matter. So there are a few paths, but most things just don't matter. And then we agonize over those decisions and we make things hard on ourselves by second guessing ourselves constantly and then asking for yet one more opinion as if that one more opinion is going to clarify things. It's going to do just the opposite. If you ever want to be unsure of yourself, ask one more person what they think. I mean, that's kind of the way people get stuck and they become paralyzed by having too many opinions in their head and they won't just make a call. So I think what's important to keep in mind is that most, truly most decisions, especially when you're small, probably don't matter that much to begin with and just kind of go with whatever's comfortable. I mean, when we picked Ruby to make Basecamp, mm. of course, prior to Rails, because Rails hadn't been invented yet, we didn't make it yet. But David's just like, I, I like this Ruby thing. It, it seems like the people I admire are exploring it and they're excited about it. And I like the way the code looks and let's do it. We could have done PHP instead. It, Basecamp would have been built. The product would have existed. Now, you could say longer term, maybe we're able to do more because it's on Ruby and there's programmer happiness and then we invented Rails and all the other things that happened. But that none of those considerations were being made at the moment. It was just like, which language do we like? David's like, I like this one. I'm like, fine, let's do that. So that's my point. There's all these other things yeah. that can unfold that we don't know if they're going to unfold until we start unfolding them over time. And to think about all the folds that you might end up with, it's sort of a, a waste of energy, I think. What was your biggest failure that was helping you with 37 Signals in that regard? Because I always feel like most of the founders that I talk to that I really also look up to, and I think they have really great careers. They also had like these one defining, you know, like these things that are just prevented them from making the same mistake again. Yeah. What Was there something like this? There's been a number of things that we didn't do as well as we could have. People I will always receive this the wrong way, but I don't really think about failure. It's not that mm -hmm. we don't make mistakes. I just don't, I don't think about it. Like I always think of like, how does evolution work? Evolution, like certain things survive, certain things don't, certain things adapt, certain things don't. Evolution's not sitting there using energy thinking about the, the wing shape that didn't work. It's just like the wings that worked. 
let's make those even better, you know, or, or whatever. Right. And that's just how I, I tend to be in business, which is of course we, things don't go as well as you thought and our experiment mm. doesn't work as well as you thought, or you hired someone that didn't work out or you let someone go that you shouldn't have. There's a million things that may have happened that probably have happened along the way. There's opportunities, money, we left money on the table. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. A million things. I mean, to go through the catalog of all the things that didn't work, I don't think you're better off going through that catalog. I think you're better off putting your energy into like, okay, well, what's working? Let's do more of that. Let's do more of that. Think about it more like evolution. Let's do more of that. Let's evolve like that. Let's not pay attention to the things that didn't work. So I don't think there was a thing. I mean, there's been moments when we're reminded about our core principles or something, perhaps like when we make things too complicated and we get ourselves into a bind or like, why did we make this so complicated? Like David just went on a rampage last week because he was trying to update a marketing site. He hasn't touched the marketing sites for a while. That's not really Mm. his purview. He had to update something that took like 20 minutes to deploy it live. And he's like, what the fuck? Why does this take 20 minutes? It used to be like, literally you'd like FTP a new file to a server and it would be live, right? He's like, how was FTP better than what we have today. Like there's a problem here that we've gotten so complicated. We've adopted so many services and systems and techs. And so so he's like, fuck this. So we have this thing internally right now where we're thinking about like the stone age, Hmm. which is how do we go back to the stone age? Like what worked so well back then that we forgot about? That's sort of what I think is really important. Can you give me one second? Someone's here, hopefully not to turn my internet connection off. There's a service guy here. (laughs) Go for it. But we'll see if you go black. (laughs) Yeah. Give me one second. Hang on. Let me make sure you don't do that. Okay. Hang on. I should totally keep this into the recording. I don't know whether I should at this point, but I think that would be pretty fun. So Jason just left the room because somebody's about to turn his internet off, which is funny because they tried to do the same with me as well. All right, we're here. And luckily, uh, I stopped him. So we're, we're good. <laughs> That's really good. It's really funny because in the last session that I recorded with Andrew Davis from uh, Paddle, my fucking browser crashed. I know. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. That was with Adam Fishman. And yeah, we kept it in the recording. Yeah. So in the actual pod, I'm thinking about whether I should keep this in. You should. You I- sh- this is life. This is what happens when you work from home, especially. Like we literally have a guy coming to fix our internet today and he happens to come right now in the middle of this call. And so oh, here that's, we are. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's perfect. Of course. Anyway, this is how I told him every to business is running. Not touch anything until uh, we're done. So is he standing in the corner just looking at you aggressively he, now for 30 minutes? I don't minutes? know what he's doing. <laughs> just not, you're not he's paying waiting. attention. Yeah. No, we learned from you today. We're not paying attention. We're just focused on ourselves. That's okay. Right. <laughs> so let's maybe pick up the thread right. on this one. Okay. I forgot what we were talking about. Well, but- we were talking about what was the topic again? Oh, not looking back. This idea of, of taking the cue from evolution. Like yeah, just there you keep go. And it's doubling down on yeah. things that work. Just do that. I mean, we have so little time anyway. We have only yeah. so much energy. I'm just looking forward versus looking backwards. Again, like important. You got to be self aware enough to know when you're really fucked up. Like, that can happen. And you can't think like whatever you're doing is great. That's not the point. The point is, though, is don't dwell on that stuff. Recognize it. Spend a minute or two on it. You know, but you got to pay attention moving forward. Like this is why I don't like postmortems. I don't like reviewing projects that didn't go well. Like what didn't go well? I don't know. Sometimes you just like, well, you make up these things like, well, that didn't go well. Had that gone well, everything else would have gone well. How do you know? You just don't know. Just you know what? Next time, try harder. <laughs> Like just, this is, I, yeah. I fucking love this. I love yeah. this because it's like this attribution error of like, oh, look, there's a house burning. So we need to find now a reason. Right. Every, every retro I've ever been a part of had a million reasons on why things were going wrong. There was never a retro where someone went like, I'm just not sure. I don't know. It was always someone's fault or some process or something, yeah. you know, and then you had these to-do post-its that nobody's looking at afterwards. <laughs> and the, the thing is, is that there's no counterfactual you can put it up against. So you don't really have any idea. In fact, I'm going to yeah, write about so, this. I'm, yeah. I've been meaning to write about this. I'm going to write about this after this podcast, in fact, because it's, it Boom. really bugs me. Like you, you spend all this time, you find, you find these problems. You have no idea really if they were problems. They might have been problems, but they might not have been the problem that really mattered. And so yeah. you, you have this catalog of things you did wrong. You don't want to do again next time. You have no idea if it mattered or not. And the energy that's sunk into these things, it just drives me crazy. So we just kind of keep looking forward. So I've been working at SmallPDF and we had 50 million monthly active users. So every experiment that we made, we could verify relatively objective. You know, like you know, like some kind of, 
hypothesis that is driven by numbers in some way. And these are not as complex as, oh, what went wrong like in the last two sprints, whether Jason had his coffee in the morning or not. Right. <laughs> but So why is it that professionals who are doing this every day are wrong the majority of the time? Because we were wrong about 70 to 75% of the time cannot guess what the outcome is of something, even if we can validate it afterwards with the market, you know, like whether it works better. But in a retro, we have an answer 100% of the time. <laughs> because, because the answer doesn't have to stand up to reality. And so you can be very confident with the answer I, because you can't, re, you can't replay that tape again, really, and do it the different way, fixing that one thing that went wrong. So therefore, you don't have to prove that it's right. It doesn't have to meet reality. And so yeah. you can get very, very confident because you know you'll never be proven wrong. That's yeah, why. It, it sounds very, trap. very nice. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. This is yeah. what Philip Tetlock calls in super forecasting exactly the problem, why we are so bad in predicting the future or like, you know, analyzing events in general in this way. Because there's just no objective truth to test it against. Because if you do, then you figure out how bad you actually are. And <laughs> yeah, don't so. Want to feel that way, yeah. Oh my God, it's a great yeah. book. You have to read it. Yeah. So. I don't know what your position on this is. I have an inkling, but let's see what it is. So I'm shitting on a regular basis on agile processes in general. And I don't mean like being agile versus waterfall. I think that's a false dichotomy. Like it's not, there's not a choice that you have to do. So when you said about the Stone Age thing, we try to kind of, you know, reduce the amount of tools that we're using. We try to simplify things. We are living right now in an age where I can make any tool for any of my problems. Well, not all of them, but some of them within 10, 20 minutes with ChatGPT or whatever, that's at least what people think, right? So like we have more and more and more tooling for all the little bullshit that we have. Yep. And I don't think that the challenge is anymore on how to build stuff fast. It's more of what David saw, right? It's just knowing what to do becomes much more important than just building shit fast. And yes. this is so fascinating to me. Are you also on the same horse here? Uh, that's a good regard? insight, actually. It's a really good insight. I'm glad you brought that up because the thing I hadn't been able to really put it in words before, but I think you just nailed it, which is this obsession with speed. There, mm -hmm. is, there should be some interest in speed. Speed is important. Mm -hmm. But this idea that like AI or whatever, uh, these things are going to make everything faster and that that's what we need, that the problem is that we're all moving too slowly. I think there is probably too, we are moving too slowly in some ways, but that rapidly accelerating things is going to solve those problems. In, in the meantime, I think what you were kind of also trying to say, or not trying, what you said, what I think I heard you say essentially is that like we're built, we're building things faster, we're doing things faster that we don't need to do. That's to me, and that's what David was getting at when he rebuilt this. He just built this new tool called Skiff, which is just like a much radically simpler way to deploy marketing websites, static websites, essentially that we would have had 15 years ago and been thrilled with, and like. Things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. They've gotten worse because we're doing more that we don't need to do. We're doing more better. We're no. doing more efficiently. We're maybe doing more faster. We're doing more and more elegantly, but we didn't need to do the more in the first place. That's the problem. So I think that's what, there's a lot of tinkering on things that just don't need to be done. And yeah. that's when you can do more things faster, you tend to do more things that don't need to be done because there's not a lot of things that actually need to be done. Most things don't need to be done. That's, that's the problem. That's true. Yeah. That is true. And it's not about shipping. It's sometimes also about unshipping, right? Like it's about cutting the crap out of it. Cutting. Sco we call it scope hammering. Oh, I love that. We're aggressive. So we have a, we have a, a system we built called ShapeUp, which is our yeah. methodology, which you can look at basecamp.com slash ShapeUp, free book, whatever. You can look it up. The cornerstone of this is appetites, not estimates. So first of all, we don't estimate how long something's going to take. We say, we're only going to give it three weeks. And if you say that, or we're only going to give this four weeks or w whatever, it's all about chiseling this mm -hmm. piece of marble into something. It's not adding more marble. It's chiseling. It's getting rid of things to, to figure out what is the essence, what's hiding in this piece of stone that we can actually pull off in that amount of time. That is all about editing and cutting. That's how great albums are made. You know, the, the Beatles, well, whatever. And let's take well, let's be one of the greatest bands ever, right? An album has uh, 10 cuts, 11 tracks, whatever, nine tracks. Like they recorded 30, but they picked nine or 11 or whatever it is, you know? Because that's the best work. That's the cutting process. So we are obsessive about editing, and we call it scope hammering, the idea that you're literally hammering with a chisel to, to cut things down. Right. The reason why this is so important is because software is not a physical object. So software has no natural edges or pushback. There's no laws of physics that are like telling you 
that's too big or that's too mm-hmm. heavy or that material is too hard or too soft or too hot or too cold or whatever, right? If you need to see into something, it can't be steel. It's got to be glass. There's like all these things, these physical properties that give you cues and clues. Software is not that way. Software can be anything it desires. And so there are no natural pushbacks and no natural edges and no natural limitations. It can be anything. And as computers are getting faster and faster and more powerful and more powerful and everything's getting cheaper and cheaper, you make bigger and bigger and bigger products that have no limitations. Before it was like, things were, this would be too slow. Now you don't even have that, right? So this is why it's so important to get better and better and better at limiting what you're going to build and limiting what you can do. Otherwise, you will follow all your worst instincts and make something massive and complicated. Because there's nothing naturally saying, hey, 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 that's, hang on a second, that's too hard, or that's a mess. So anyway, I wanted to put that in there, because I think that's at the root of this as well. It's perfect. The problem is I have about 20 points that I wanted to bring in, so let me try to just bring one, but at least doing good. So I think what you were talking about in terms of the objective reality of a product, right? So like, what is a better product? I think we fooled ourselves at some point into thinking that whatever makes more money is a better product. There's a couple of problems with that kind of notion, because mm-hmm. first of all, it does not take care of, like, even if you're just on the monetary side, is long-term better than short-term? Yes, I would say so, right? So like long-term value. And I'm still, I'm still an idealist. I still believe that customer success is the thing that you should go for, mm-hmm. because then you're also going to get good revenue that you can also sleep well in the night. Let me just do something that you should never do, which is I'm quoting myself because I just looked up a quote that I wrote on this particular topic. And I would love to hear what you think about it because I think we're approaching this from the same angle. You can have the perfect sprint and achieve still nothing. That was the first one that I wrote. And I also knew that I had quite quite a lot of feedback from the community on this because we are now in the age of Agile where we are so busy running a bit faster every day that we forgot to ask ourselves whether we're running into the right direction. And this is so crucial because running into the right direction can also mean that you run backwards. It's like, hey, look, we tried this kind of thing and then we just, we just got rid of it. I don't, and I also tell everybody that was in my product orgs, I always said like, look, I don't care what you do. Just make the wheel turn faster for the customer, whether that's unshipping something, shipping something, not touching something. Giving David access to the FTP, I don't care what it is. I'm going to evaluate you on the on, on how fast you make the wheel for the customer and nothing else. Yeah, that's the outcome ultimately that we're looking for. At the same time, you want to make sure that your employees enjoy the work because if it's all, and I, I, I know you don't think this, but like if it's only for the customer, I don't think that's good either, but it should be primarily for the customer. Ultimately, if you're in business to serve them, but you've got to find the balance where you're not pushing your employees too hard. Because you could say, like, we can make this thing better for our customers if, if everyone worked 100 hour weeks. Like, we could just keep pumping out stuff. Okay. Right. Okay. I know you don't mean that, but we need to put a barrier there because some people would hear that and go, whatever it takes, whatever, whatever it takes. Three, those three words are dangerous. No. They're really dangerous words. Like, whatever it takes to make the customer happy, whatever it takes to, but, 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 whatever, whatever it takes yeah. to hit this number. Whatever. Dangerous. So fair. Yeah. Fair. And I know so, you didn't. No, no, mean no. That, Let but, me ask you a question. Let me yeah. ask you a question. Then. So, on the side of the leader, so like we have to kind of steer the organization, right? Like we also have to, I know you have some funny uh, opinions as well about culture, which I highly subscribe to, by the way. Okay. I think Ravi Mehta said something really interesting on my podcast. He said, culture is what people do when they don't know what to do. And I think mm. you said that culture is something on a rolling basis of like 50 days moving, or something. Yeah, moving yeah. 50 day average. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I am of the firm belief that my job as a leader in any company is to set incentives that if you start to kind of really work these incentives, you know, like you try to really kind of figure out or like the goals that you set to people as well that if you really work into these goals, that if you start to kind of abuse them, that they're still good for the company and also the people in them. So I just want to give you an example. If you incentivize salespeople, I would love to hear this from, from your perspective. So if we you have, have salespeople, people, so go ahead. Ah, damn it. <laughs> so if you incentivize someone in sales to give you as high as possible of a closing on signature, then they will do that. So they will oversubscribe your customer because it's for their detriment. So in that case, your goal is bad. You can have an in all hands and you can say like, oh, we should not shortchange the the customer and so forth. But it's actually your fault as a leader. 
So how do you think about this conceptually as well from your kind of side? Like, what is your job in steering in this regard? Are you someone that mops up afterwards? Or <laughs> I know the answer, of course, but... No, that's a good question. I think the sales thing is actually, even though we don't have salespeople, I think it's a really interesting um, side of it because uh, I'm assuming, because I, I don't know, but I, it feels like I've been on the receiving end of a salesperson who's incentivized to close a deal at, at all costs or any, you know, whatever it takes, because no. they always will overpromise. And because they don't have to deliver, yep. they just have to deliver the sale. They don't have to deliver the product. And so they make, they make these outlandish claims and, and, or timeframes or whatever it is. And then at the end, of course, it never comes through as, as expected, but they're long gone on to the next sale. So that's what happens when there's that disconnect between at all costs and then what actually gets delivered. For us, you know, we, we, you know, again, we work with the shape up method, which is basically a maximum. Of, we can only spend six weeks on anything. And that's not like a piece of a thing. It's every, any, anything we ship, any feature we ship has to be done within six weeks or less. Okay. So it's not like agile where you can keep pumping two weeks into something for eight months. It's like, no, no, six weeks max. Okay. And that is a natural um, envelope of time where you can't overdo it in a sense. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you have to underdo it in a lot of ways. And we only work 40 hour weeks roughly, you know, sometimes it could be 45, sometimes it'd be 35, but like the combination of how much time we have available and the fact that we have a relatively short time frame and like, it's got to get done. It does actually keep you honest on the cutting side. There's always more stuff we want to get into the thing than we can. Always more. We always end up with a little bit less of what we wanted. And so I, and I'm okay with that. And I like that as the outcome. I think whenever we find ourselves in a situation where we're trying to shove more stuff in at the end, or there's this, mm -hmm. what I would call a pile up at the end, yeah, yeah. we've yep. done something wrong. And so then I will remind everybody that like, this is the wrong direction. We're going, we waited too long to figure this out. We waited too long to make these decisions. We need to cut aggressively, you know, that, and that's sort of the, the fix. So it's never shove in more. It's always let's do less if we have to. I hope that I answers like, the question. I it know. absolutely does. So I was okay. also listening to quite a few episodes on your methodology there with Shape Up. Uh, I was just looking up the the name of the podcast itself. It's Rework, right? Like it's the Rework podcast. The, our podcast is the Rework podcast. Yeah, yeah there you go. Okay. Yeah. So, but I have a challenge to that. I have a little challenge to that because I am absolutely certain that in 90% of the cases, this is the right approach to do things. But there's a 10% <laughs> case that I'm going to give you afterwards. Let okay. me tell you a story first that you're absolutely going to love. When I was buying my car, it was a Kia about 10 years ago. Don't mm -hmm. judge. No I was going to they make great cars. <laughs> they do. It's a hybrid. And I went to the salesperson there that was selling me the car. And I was, I, I had a really pleasant interaction with him, you know, like just overall. And I just, yeah. you know, what I always do is I ask people how they're incentivized. Because you would be surprised how many people are actually telling you how much money they make, how they're going to get paid, and so forth. And so far, I always knew that, you know, salespeople, they make quotas on cars. I mean, the cars business is kind of like the oldest sales-led growth yes. business that you can have. And he tells me, I don't actually make any money if I sell you anything. And I said, like, okay, so like, how is your performance evaluated? And then he said, like, the amount of negative calls that I get back are going into my performance report. And then if there's not too many, right, or like understandably amount, then I'm going to get my bonus. It's that simple. And I 100% believed him. I don't know whether he bullshitted me, but I really loved it. This was the first time where I saw this kind of model where you're like, yeah, this actually works. But it's not about the salesperson. It's about the goal that has been given to them. And it's incentivizing them to not talk me into a navigation system that cost me like $5,000 that I cannot resell after like three years. Right. And you know, I like that. That's interesting. It's interesting uh, metric, which is like the fewest number of complaints or something is kind of what that is. So there, there's a famous electronics store in the Chicago area called Apt Electronics. Mm -hmm. My cousin used to work there as a salesperson, and I, I learned about this through him. They sell super high-end home theaters. They sell computers. They sell washing machines. You know, they sell all, the, all this stuff and really high-end brands. And they also sell like really um, low-priced things like a cable, like a charging cable, which is like, you know, $20 or something. No. And I just was talking about sales at some point. And, and he says, you know, at app, they don't give you uh, a commission based on the dollar value of the item. Mm -hmm. Every item, no matter if you sell a $20,000 item or a $20 item, it gets the same commission. We just, we, all we do is, all we're incentivized is to sell something. So we don't push our customers to pay more for things they don't need. If I sell them a $4,000 TV, that's just as fine if I sell them a $7,000 TV. So 
they they basically get bonused or commissioned on unit sales, not on dollar sales. And I think mm-hmm. that's another different. It's different. It's not the same thing you're talking about with the car person, but it's another type of incentive that puts the customer a little bit more ahead than than a salesperson who's just trying to in their mind counting dollars. Like, oh, gosh, if I sell them, I'll sell them the eight thousand dollar TV. They don't give a shit. I'll just sell them that one because I'll make more on that. But the point really is to find the thing that works well for the customer, and then that's that's how that works. You know, we're both acting like this is so really obvious, right? And we're in agreement. Nobody says something else anyways. And I think one of the problems that we still not haven't figured this out in, in the industry is that the amount of business that you get from someone loving your product, you know, they go around and they say, hey, I love Basecamp, I love 37 Singles, whatever, whatever I'm consuming from you, or like your books or whatever. It's very hard to kind of attribute and measure the price of or the value of word of mouth until it actually does happen. Right. And this is so weird to me because the way that we evaluate companies and like, let's say you have an IPO. I mean, what do you put in your P&L statement? You put in your revenue, you put all it, you pick all, but not the stuff that actually matters (laughs) for the customers in some way. And I know it sounds a bit hippie, but I feel like you cannot even evaluate a SaaS business based on these numbers that you have to put into a P&L statement because it doesn't tell you how much of it is ARR, how much of it is MRR. You, you don't have to. You just have to, this is the amount of money that we made. This is what we paid for it. It doesn't tell you the LTV. It does not tell you, it doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. That's kind of problematic. Yeah, I, th- I think probably a smart investor is looking at brand here too, which is not ever really represented in, can't be represented in a P&L. I mean, you can look at marketing spend and advertising spend, but like, how do people feel about this company? Is this company hot? Are they on the up and up? Do people mm. trust them? Are people talking about them? That stuff, th- those are the, well, I was gonna say they're intangibles. They're actually quite tangible, but they're not in numbers. And there's a lot of intuition in this. And, and my general feeling is, I've, I've been planning on writing about this too, which is, I, I don't, I, I think most decisions are purely intuitive, actually, even though there's all these numbers everywhere and, and yeah. everyone's looking for numbers and data. If you're asking a human being to make a decision, before a decision can be made. You have all the numbers, all the dashboards, all the whatever, the P&Ls, the num- someone's making a decision that's intuitive. Still, it's still an intuitive decision. Otherwise, you would just ask a computer to make the decisions. And that might be the case moving forward. Might, we might be relying more on computers to make decisions. But right now, if a human being is involved, intuition is the primary decision, is the primary input, actually. And so I think when you look at all these statements, and you're really just... What do I feel? How do I feel about this company? Yeah, the numbers are there. I mean, the numbers have to be there. If they're losing buckets of money, that's a problem. But let's say they're doing pretty well. Let's say there's five or six or 10 companies that are doing kind of well and kind of the same. There's something else that you're choosing between them, no. which is like, how do I feel about them? What have I heard about them? What do I know about them? What do I know? What do other people I know know about them? That's kind of how you how you make the call. This I love this so much because it, it kind of also hints at this other garbage that we sometimes do as humans. We attribute like one cause to one outcome. It's like, oh, this company made 200 fucking million. So it must be Gary in sales that did this and that. And then on the other side, you have like, I don't know, you know, like just a prominent head. So it must, that, that was him. Yeah. That, that was him. That was yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, maybe that's the case sometimes, right? But mostly, no. Nah, There's so man. many, I mean, I would say probably almost never, right? And if that one person closed that one mega deal, does anyone really know how or why? I mean, I, I just don't think any, I think yeah, most things are a huge fucking mystery. Yeah. Even even the things that we feel like we can attribute, I just think things are a mystery most of the time. And like we talked about earlier, especially if you don't have to prove the counterfactual and you mostly cannot because you're not running yeah truly two AB things. So look, if you're doing a, an AB test or something, it's a true AB test on a marketing site with two different shape buttons and you can, okay, then there's something there. Like I know that this did something differently, but most things have hundreds of variables, timing, market conditions, economic no. conditions, wars in the world, wars that are coming up in the world. There's a million things that are going on the weather's been really, really, really hot for two months, and someone's thinking about something differently because of that. Like you never factor that in, but it's in there. Or they had a shitty weekend, or they're going through a divorce, or there's a million things that are going on that are never represented actually in business metrics. So I think it's a big mystery. Most things are. And that's why I'm a big believer of just going with your gut and going with the flow of the mystery. It's all a mystery. Just this roll is, with it. 
This is so funny to me. I remember when I was much younger and I was looking up to the business people in the ties and I nothing against people who run around with ties, you know, like, but we had these typical corner offices, you know, like where just people just vanished into a business and then right. like they closed the door and you were just thinking like, how do they do this? Do yeah. they have some secret knowledge that I'm not aware of? You know, like did they, they, they can probably juggle the numbers better and so forth. And at some point you just figure out, no, it's all bullshit. I mean, not only is it bullshit, it's like, sure, there is something behind controlling and running a company. That's not what I'm saying. It is not easy. I'm with you. But I, I strongly believe also with you like, you, like you do, we don't do what we want. We want what we do most of the time. Mm-hmm. And looking mm-hmm. behind this kind of bias is maybe yeah. the success later in life that you have it easier on what you said you should do. You don't care that much. Well, some people have... Clearly, some people have more experience than others. Some people have different insights than others. Some people have different degrees of awareness than others. Like, can someone work a spreadsheet better than someone else? And that's the difference? I, I don't know. I, to me, it's like you look at the numbers, and then when you look at the numbers, what's going on in your head that's different? The numbers are the same, but they're filtering through a brain, and that brain is, has experiences, and it's bouncing it off a million different things and future ideas and past ideas and current ideas and how they feel and gut, gut feeling and intuition and all these things and out comes something. You can't explain what that is. You, you cannot explain why that person probably made that decision. We can go back and try to explain it. And that, that's worthwhile. It can be worthwhile to, because it's also just interesting, frankly, to like think about decisions and why they were made and why you think oh, you yeah, made it's them. it's fascinating. I love it's it. I, lo- I love decision making, actually. It's yeah. fascinating. But I think yeah. at the core of it, it's still a massive mystery. It's a huge mystery. So what we're doing is we're just simply trying to piece something together like an archaeologist, but we don't really know. We don't really know what that society was like or what that animal was like 50 million years. We don't really know. We think we know, but we just don't know. And that's fine. But there's a degree of intuition there that I think is really underplayed and underappreciated in the business world, everyone's looking to be certain of everything. And certainty is like, if I add these two numbers up, the output is this, and that's certainty. But most business decisions are, and most businesses in general are not, have no, there's no certainty in them whatsoever. Unless they're really making like, it's down, it's like a widget commodity business that, you know, can sign up a certain number of contracts and they're going to make 15 cents per thing. Like there are those kind of very equation-based businesses. Yep. But software businesses, these are really floating amoeba-like structures, and, and they're very <laughs> unpredictable, actually. The market's very Amoeba. I, I like this because yeah. I, I'm trying to figure out the name of this kind of fallacy. There is a thing that we are extremely good in predicting a macro environment. So like, if I, for instance, if I would ask you, hey, out of these 100,000 people, you have 100,000 people in front of you. And I would ask you, like, how many people of those are actually dying in a car accident in the next year? You could be very precise. Yeah. Dangerously precise about it. Yeah. But it Actuary would be tables are very accurate in that, in that respect, yes. Exactly, right? So, like, judging the macro is very predictable. Sometimes, yeah. in some cases... In some cases, it is. Other yeah, but cases, even totally even not. if you like, even if you with the stock market, it's very likely that we're not going to see more than like let's say thirty percent of movement in either direction, right? right. Like so, yes. because that's already quite a lot. But for the individual stock or the individual person, the individual leader, and the individual business, you can only use these insights in so far that you don't have any insight about what you do right now yourself. So, like, I have no better data available. That is actually not a good choice on how to run a business at all. Um, right. The thing is, it's interesting about that. I, th- I think there's something kind of neat about this discussion, which is I always look at uh, stock market analysts mm. and uh, a stock comes out and they they surprise on the upside of the surprise on the downside. And yeah. there's analysts whose entire job is to f- pay attention to this business, to know all the, the whole supply chain or the whole thing. And they no, cannot no, figure no, it out. <laughs> and, and they're wrong oftentimes. And then after the stock tanks 25%, then they issue a sell, a, whatever they call it notice or something. I forget the, the right terminology. Like, no, no, you're supposed to do that before the stock drops 20%, not after. Like, no. or it's, sorry, it's a downgrade. They downgrade after the, after the, they, they miss earnings. Like how about doing that before? So, so even people who are paying very close attention to things that should be cut and dry for someone who's only paying attention to this can be surprised all the time. And there's same, same thing is true. Like I live in California right now, last mm-hmm. year in Southern California, well, actually, most of California, the drought 
There was a 10-year drought, massive drought in California, horrible. Last year, it rained so much that the drought is effectively over across the entire state, something no one thought could happen in one season. Mm. Nobody. And in fact, I remember the weather predictions were it was going to be another hot and dry winter. It, they just were wrong. And, and not to say that they're always wrong. Some years are totally right, you know. But, but there are these things where we just, even at the macro level, we just, we don't know so much. There are things though that are much easier to predict, obviously, than other things. No. And like to your point about car fatalities, these are fairly static systems. We're not adding more roads. When, yep. You know, the car growth is about the same. Same human beings are driving these cars. So you can really kind of more accurately predict car deaths or, or fatalities or accidents because the system is kind of the same as it was last year. But businesses and markets and customers and competition, those are four things that are, or however many that was, that are just radically changing on their own all the time. No. And so to think that you can really accurately predict that, I, I don't know, maybe you can get lucky. Maybe you're really, really good. I but think, I think most people just have no clue. And I, I'm okay. comfortable with not having a clue in a sense about our own business. We're just like trying to make the best thing we can and put it out into this mysterious world. And what else can we do? It really goes back to this back to basics where you just say like, look, no matter how, so maybe we are not able to predict what kind of products we have in the future to solve our problems. Sure. We may not even know whether we're going to drive cars, what our children are going to learn or whatever. But what is very clear is that the fundamental job of you wanting to become better as a person, right? Like I have a problem and I want to do something with whatever tool is available for me. So the customer success again, I sound like a hippie again, is maybe the only thing that you should chase because that leaves you flexible to change your tooling in case it's necessary. And I think that goes really very much into the direction of what you said, you know, like don't overcomplicate it. But why do yeah. we overcomplicate it? Because the simple message, you cannot sell a book on. Well, actually, yeah. you did, right? Like, in some well, ways, you actually did. So you did a good job on this. But now we can't anymore. It's kind of over. <laughs> One of my sort of friends, mentors, are getting Bob messed up. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him three months ago. Yeah, go oh, for Bob's it. Bob's great. So Bob's, Bob's a special human being. And his whole thing is basically, like, very simple, which is everyone's just trying to make progress. Yeah. That's basically what you were saying. He's, his thing, the way he sums it up is everyone's just trying to make progress. And there are people have struggling moments. And when they hit these struggling moments, they look for something else to help them make progress. That's like, that's it. That's it. Now, you got to make the thing. You got to understand the struggles. You've got to get it in front of them so they know it's available. All that is true. And that's marketing and sales and product development, all those things. But at the root of it, people are just trying to make progress. And if yeah. you can help them around a struggle, help them make more progress. And people are, by the way, already making progress. It's not like people aren't making progress. They're are struggling through it. They're doing something. But there comes these moments when they start to look around for something else. And if you can be there with something mm -hmm. else for them, they're going to listen to you. Otherwise, they're kind of not. They're, they're not interested. They're fine, as it were. So anyway, it is simple in the end. It really is. And we can start to throw metrics and all these things. I know Bob's a very, very analytical numbers guy, So, mm -hmm. but he's also intuitive in, in, a, in a lot of ways. It's a very interesting no. combination. But so I, for me personally... I'm just speaking for myself. I've never been interested in numbers. I don't really care about metrics. I just want to make more money than we spend. Like I look at one metric. Like how much do we have coming in? How much do we have going out? As long as we have more coming in than going out, I I don't really kind of care how we got there in a sense. Like I'm not really looking to optimize this in a tiny way over here or over there. In general, as long as we make more than we spend, like that's enough. And if we're making 12 mistakes, but 18 things we're doing well, I'm fine with that. Like I don't need to get rid of those 12 mistakes. As long as we're doing well on balance, that's good enough for me. I want to say one thing to this because I think it's a very good closing remark for also for this particular episode. I think you also have the structure that allows you to be this way because you never picked up money from VCs. You've never had to do the bidding of anyone else. And I don't mean this in a bad way. You know, raising money is not from the devil. I'm not saying that, but... I think you built yourself also this kind of path in the past 20 to 30 years. And that's what I was also trying to get at look in terms of like, did you ever make the, the mistake of actually committing yourself to someone else's idea in that sense? So this is fun. If you, if you go to 37signals.com, we've got 37 signals, which are 37 ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zero is just like a read me. Number one, the first one is independence. Independence is at the core of everything we do and what we're capable of doing. To your point, if we had to hit numbers for an invest, if we took investment money and had to hit numbers and hit returns, we couldn't do what we do. We'd be miserable. I don't think the business would still exist. I certainly wouldn't be here. 
Mm. We don't have to do anything for anybody else other than ourselves and our customers. And that is a conscious decision that we made and we've always made. And every week I still continue to get emails from VCs and private equity firms and everyone's put money in us. We've never taken money. I'm not interested in taking money to put it in the business. For those who are listening, in 2007, we took some money from Jeff Bezos mm. that went to David and I. So David and I sold some personal shares to Jeff. So Jeff owns a piece of the business, but none of Jeff's money's ever gone in the business. No one's money's ever gone in the business except customer money. So we don't have to answer to anybody. We don't have to hit any numbers, any targets, anything like that. That's why we're able to do the things we want to do the way we want to do them. And to me, as an entrepreneur, that is what entrepreneurship is. If you start a business... And the first thing you do is go raise money for, from someone, you're now working for them, which is sort of against, in my definition of it, the whole point of being an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is, is carving out your own thing, doing things your own way, finding your own path forward. And not that, again, not that people are not entrepreneurs who raise money. I'm just saying my definition of it is different. And I want to be true to that definition because that's what, that's what I want to do. Everyone's got to figure out what they want to do for themselves. Going back to maybe the first or second question we talked about, like, don't do what I do. Don't do what you do. Don't do what they do. Figure out what works for you. Pay attention to what other people are doing if you're curious. But ultimately, it's got to be natural for you. If it's not natural for you, you're going to be fighting it every step of the way. It's hard enough. Don't be fighting things all the time. Don't be doing things you don't think you want to do or don't think you should be doing because someone else is doing them. Don't look at Gary V and go, I should be like Gary V. Gary V is Gary V. That's is fucking amazing. I love Gary, but I'm not Gary. I can't be Gary. I don't want to be Gary. I don't have that energy. I don't have that thing. And if I tried to be like him, I would fall flat because Gary is Gary. You got to, everyone's got to find out who they are and do their yeah. own thing their own way. And I think maybe my philosophy on this is that you should never give up, even if you don't see the way there, because nobody, none of us have seen how our future unfolded. Totally. You just have to trust that you're going to find it as it comes to you. And that is about endurance. That's all it is. And Firmly convinced of that. Hundred percent agree. And the other thing that's really important about this, about endurance, especially in the business world, is profitability allows you to have endurance. If you can't make the business work, you will be out of business, and you won't have the time. People always say like, you can't buy time. In business, you can buy time. It's the only world where you can really buy time, in a sense. Which is that as long as you're profitable, as long as you're making a dollar more than you need, you get to live to see another day. And that gives you another chance to figure something out or find something out. If you don't have that, you can't. And you have to start something up again, which is always hard. And so endurance has a lot to do with profitability and sustainability in terms of running a business. And, and I think the more time you have under the curve, the, the more likely you will find something that ultimately works for yourself. No. Yeah. That's a beautiful closing remark. Jason, how should people get in contact with you? Should they get in contact with you? Do you need more funds? Do you want to sell some shares of the company? No, no. But uh, if you want to if you want to reach out, my email address is public. Just jason at 37signals.com or jason at hey.com, H-E-Y.com. I'm on Twitter at my name, Jason at Jason Freed. I'm on LinkedIn. Those are pretty much the only two social things I'm on. And then I have my own little newsletter, world.hey.com slash Jason. And check out our books, check out our products. We'd love to have you as customers. I highly recommend the blog as well. You have a very beautiful post about a watchmaker there. So if oh, yeah. you want to yeah. know what this is about, go tune Rogers. in right now. And that's Great. the end of this podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. This was wonderful. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Boom. That was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to The Product Tea with Leah. If you don't have enough yet, you can subscribe to my podcast right now at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can head to my website, leahtarin.com which is L-E-A-H-T-H-A-R-I-N.com, where you can find much more of my material or just want to work with me. 